Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. EU Confidential will get started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by Gilead Sciences. 2030 is the deadline set by the UN Sustainable Development Goals to end the AIDS epidemic once and for all. As we enter this final decade, now more than ever, we need to work together with a renewed ambition and focus. At Gilead Sciences, we believe that together we can stop the virus. The European Union, in its own way, has a lot to offer. We have established and time-tested relations with many actors in the region and beyond to de-escalate the situation. Welcome to EU Confidential and to our first episode of 2020. And if it's not too late, Happy New Year. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, where things are starting to pick back up. In fact, the US killing of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani brought some of us back a little early from our holidays. But not European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. The president of the self-proclaimed Geopolitical Commission waited more than three days to issue any kind of public response. Was that just a reflection of the reality that Europe's not really a key player here, or a missed opportunity to seize the initiative and come up with a European solution to this crisis? Let's bring in our podcast panel to discuss that and how the year ahead looks across Europe. Reem Montaz is in Paris. Hi, Reem. Bonjour and bonne année. Bonne année to you too. And hi to Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Oh, God, do I have to do the German again? I always feel under pressure to do it when Reem does the... uh, No, I just... No, but we'll be leaving this in for sure. You could just say hi, you know, play it cool. Hello. (laughs) Thanks. And hi to Annabelle Dixon in London. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. Okay, well, let's just um, start off by looking at this huge news in the Middle East. Um, Obviously, we talked a little bit in the intro about uh, how things played out here in Brussels. Uh, We had uh, Joseph Borrell, the um, foreign policy chief, issue a statement on on Friday, but nothing from Ursula von der Leyen until Monday uh, late afternoon. Now, Matt, you have uh, a piece which is on our website as I speak with the headline, Why Europe Hates Trump More Than Iran. So give us a flavour of what you think the U.S. makes of the the European response so far. Pompeo came out over the weekend on your favourite channel, Fox News, in the U.S., and was very critical of the way the Europeans have responded so far. And I think it was also the Europeans tend to be very backward-looking when they talk about Iran and this conflict, and they always go back to the JCPOA, the 
the nuclear deal and lament the fact that the U.S. pulled out of the JCPOA. And, um, you know, it's just it's not really clear what the European role here can be because they're clearly not backing the U.S. But on the other hand, they're not too enthusiastic about what Iran is doing. I think uh, in terms of the U.S. position, there's a lot of frustration that the Europeans haven't been stronger really in condemning a lot of the recent actions Iran has taken in the region, especially in Iraq. So there doesn't seem to be any real love lost here between the U.S. and and Europe on this issue and, and amongst other issues. And that's sort of what I focused on in that piece, saying, you know, that the one of the big uh, sort of victims of this whole episode might, again, be the the transatlantic relationship. Reem, do you think the French, um, you know, why did they see themselves or, or and perhaps Europe more generally as possibly being the key to this de-escalation? Listen, there are a couple of things at play here. A, let me just start by saying that I, I did think that the the headline on that piece was a bit too much. I, I The Europeans do not hate the US more than Iran. I don't think they hate either. Uh, and the French have been very explicit about indeed being closer to the US just because the US is their ally and they still perceive the US and consider the US to be their ally despite uh, recent disagreements. Uh, Iran is not their ally. And Iran has attempted to carry out terrorist attacks in France. And they're very aware of that. Now, the French A have been working from the beginning on creating what they call a third way. That is the the biggest asset they have at their disposal, let's be honest. It's not like they can sort of weigh in on this issue militarily or economically, but they can weigh in diplomatically. And they also feel like they've been right from the beginning about saying we are on an escalation path, we need to de-escalate. You know, the past two weeks, we got super close to the brink. It seems like we've just stepped slightly back right now, but there's still a need to de-escalate. And they also feel bolstered because in New York, while they weren't able to to make the deal in the end, they felt like, well, they were the only ones who have actually built an, what they call an operational framework for a diplomatic, sort of like a roadmap for a diplomatic solution when the US and Iran decide to do so. And they are very honest about the fact that ultimately the ultimate deciders are Iran and the US. But what they can do is provide the framework and the roadmap, and they'll continue doing that. You know, this is a fast moving um, story. So there's a there's always a danger when even between recording and, and putting the podcast out that things may have changed again. But maybe just to wrap up, Annabelle, on this, how much of a factor do you think uh, weighing on all of this is the fact that uh, Brexit is is looming large? The relationship with the US will become even more important for the UK. And how much is that then driving foreign policy? I mean, I think including in this issue, I think uh, Boris Johnson came under, you know, attack in the House of Commons today, exactly along those lines, right? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's very much the Jeremy Corbyn attack line that Boris Johnson won't stand up to Donald Trump because he's so desperate for a trade deal. And I think there's certainly an element of truth in that because the UK is more comfortable with the E3 position. It's definitely not. And Boris Johnson himself is definitely not a, a sort of gung-ho Trump, however much people make the comparisons, Boris Johnson does not want a big war in the Middle East and does not definitely doesn't want to have to be making big decisions about troop deployment and defence. 
with all, all the other things that he's got on his plate. He, he wants to be talking about domestic issues, frankly. It's interesting what Reem was saying about and, and what you were saying about Macron playing that sort of broker role. And th- there are some people who have been sort of patting themselves on the back in Downing Street, suggesting that the, the UK has done a brilliant job of, of walking the tightrope. And, and they sort of want to see themselves as the broker's going forward I'd, I'd be interested the perception from the other capitals on that because when britain sort of decided on its brexit policy one of one of the things that one of the sort of big arguments of the brexiteers was you know we're not turning into little britain we want to be this kind of big player on the global stage taking bold decisions and i mean i, I don't think we've seen that i think downing street's taken a very cautious approach and, and sort of tried to speak to both sides and, and keep both sides happy yeah, it's interesting. Uh, certainly, uh, maybe that's what we're set for, the kind of battle of the brokers or would-be brokers. Because Dominic Raab, I thought it was quite interesting that he came here to Brussels to talk with Borrell and with his E3 counterparts. And in some ways, you know, sending the signal, oh, gosh, you're, you know, they're leaving the EU, but actually first chance they get, they're back in Brussels to talk diplomacy. But then, of course, he's going off to, to the US. So he can, in a sense, claim to be the guy who's, you know, the playing the sort of transatlantic middleman, the broker, at least in in that sense. Matt, what do you make of it? Well, I'm just not sure that the Europeans can effectively play the broker role at all, because it's clear in the eyes of the Americans that they're completely wedded to the nuclear deal, which they continue to cling on to. And in fact, within 24 hours of Soleimani's assassination, uh, you had the European Commission inviting the Iranian foreign minister to Brussels, uh, Zarif. And this is a guy who is under sanction by the United States, whom the United States will not even grant a visa to visit the United Nations at the moment. So to think that the Europeans are going to come in and play some big broker role, I think is slightly naive. Yeah, well, I guess we could we could talk a lot more about this and we probably will in the weeks and months ahead. So maybe we'll just draw a line under that for now and, and move to kind of looking ahead to the year Maybe back to you, Annabelle. I mean, Brexit is obviously the big red uh, date on the calendar at the end of this month. What are the other things, you know, you think are going to kind of mark out uh, the year or is it going to be yet more Brexit and nothing much else? You were right. I was going to try and avoid talking about Brexit in this segment of the podcast because I feel like I'm getting a bit boring on the subject. I I thought something to single out was climate change. I think it's going to be a very interesting debate in the UK as well. Boris Johnson said today that he was going to set up a cabinet committee on climate change and um, the UK is hosting the COP26 uh, later this year. And that's obviously going to be the big moment for the Paris Agreement and capitals are actually going to have to start putting their money where their mouth is. It's all very well talking about the Australian wildfires and saying how awful it is, but we're actually going to have to see the nuts and bolts of, of when, what people are going to do and when. Definitely the the new Green Deal is obviously going to be a big issue here in Brussels. The kind of key thing here is can we actually get everybody on board and and on the same page? We had this strange spectacle, uh, you know, we reported uh, during the podcast a few weeks ago from the the summit where they said everybody would agreed on this climate neutral target of 2050, except that one country hadn't. And, you know, not just any country, but Poland, a, a very substantial country and a big, uh, you know, a country with big challenges in that area. So I do think the 
the green issue is going to be big right across uh, Europe and we're going to see obviously the the Commission is now going to have to put the, the meat on the bones on that proposal and that is going to collide very much with the other big thing in Brussels this year, the MFF, the Multiannual Financial Framework, uh, the EU budget. The current one runs out at the end of this year and uh, Charles Michel, the European Council President, is obviously trying to broker a deal sooner rather than later on that but there's a a lot of expectation, I think, that this is going to end up with the German presidency of the Council of the EU in the second half of the year. Uh, which brings us to Germany, Matt. What are the kind of big events or big themes you think are, are going to be on the German political agenda this year? Well, I think, you know, if I look into my crystal ball over here and, and take the first week of the year as as a guide, I, I think people should be prepared for the unexpected, quite frankly. And I think what we've seen so far is that Europe's leaders have been caught flat-footed. And if you look at Ursula von der Leyen's very slow response to what happened in Iran on Friday, I think it shows that they are trying to choreograph things very carefully, you know, focus on things like the Green New Deal, but then other things happen that they have to deal with, and they haven't proved very agile so far in pivoting to cope with, with unexpected events. That's an interesting thought about agility, actually. I mean, the first EU leader to respond to the crisis, who did respond fairly quickly, was Charles Michel, who is the president of the European Council. And in some ways, you might expect to be the slowest because he's meant to be the kind of chairman of the board, the guy who consults with all the leaders and, you know, comes up with a common position. Uh, but he didn't hang around. He was he was out there pretty quickly. And I think one of the interesting things to watch here in Brussels is going to be this dynamic between Charles Michel and Ursula von der Leyen. Charles Michel is, you know, very young by, uh, you know, traditional standards of politicians. He's not a guy who's in his kind of last job before retirement. This is somebody who was a, a prime minister and is clearly determined to, to make an impact. Uh, just a small thing I noticed when we were at the summit a few weeks ago. Already the decor has changed and there are plenty of pictures of Charles Michel up on the wall in that building. So I think that's somebody who's uh, pretty determined to, to build a profile for himself pretty quickly. I think unlike, uh, un unlike von der Leyen, he's used to being the, the top dog. He's used to being in the executive position. He's not used to asking people if he's allowed to say something. And that's exactly what you saw over the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. Reem, a busy year, I think, in France. You have elections coming up in, in a couple of months. Uh, tell us a bit about those and what else you think is, is on the radar, particularly for Emmanuel Macron this year. Yeah, so we have uh, local elections in, in March. Uh, so the cities are, are electing their mayors and it's going to be an important moment for Macron and his, uh, you know, political party. So we're keeping an eye on that. Obviously, uh, we are currently in the middle of a 33, 34-day strike uh, in relation to uh, pension reform. Um, and, you know, it's one of those structural big reforms uh, that he really needs to deliver on because it was not only a campaign, a presidential campaign promise, but it also could perhaps throw some doubt on his ability to reform on the European level as well. But in terms of, you know, big themes uh, for Macron, there are a few this year. He's supposed to give a big uh, nuclear deterrence uh, speech that's slated to be in February, and we're all looking at that, wondering what he's he, what he might be able to announce after his famous uh, comments on NATO. We're also looking at a summit on the Sahel. It's a super important security issue for France, but also for Europe. That's how Macron uh, sort of is presenting it. So these are some of the big uh, big themes. Of course, he's a huge uh, you know proponent of the Green Deal on the EU level and. 
is pushing that very, very hard. Okay, maybe just before we we wrap up, any final thoughts, maybe quick ones on kind of key events or moments? Annabelle? I was going to say on a lighter note, I'm really looking forward to the Olympics in Tokyo Oh, this summer. You know, I've covered uh, Olympics, uh, a couple of them, and I had... I have been so immersed in European politics lately, I hadn't even realised we're, we're in an Olympic year again. Have you we got any, any tips? You know, who's Britain going to be rallying behind? Katerina Johnson-Thompson, maybe? Yeah, I was going to say Katerina Johnson-Thompson's the one that, that I'm a big fan of. OK, see if you can get her on the podcast. A challenge accepted. <laughs> Where are the Olympics again? They're in Tokyo. Oh, right. There you go. Again, Europe's a bystander. I thought we were doing resolutions. By all means, go for it. Well, my resolution was for Europe to grow a pair. But I don't know if we can... Uh... <laughs> right. Uh, any others that might be broadcastable? Uh, my, my resolution was for Europe to finally come up with a common foreign policy in 2020, something that has eluded the EU for many years, and we're, we're seeing the strains that that creates right now. Yeah, I think that's a tall order in one year, uh, given well, again. Just throwing you well, you could do majority voting, right? You could do, uh, or, uh, you know, I think even that's a tall majority. order. But yeah, but again, as you say, and, and this is, I think this is the issue. If, you, if you're going to brand yourself as the geopolitical commission and say that you aspire to play a greater role on the, on the world stage sooner or later, some of these things that people have been talking about for, well, decades really, have to come to pass or it's again it's a becomes a credibility issue right a bit like enlargement which is another issue we could throw out as, as one of the issues again this year Reem anything more on the on the radar or new year's resolutions well there's one thing on the radar which is the g20 in Riyadh, and uh, I, i'm really wondering uh, you know how it's going to be for all these people to be in Riyadh in apparently the new and improved saudi arabia and much more liberal um, and, you know, maybe on a more naive level, and I, I take it back now, but right, you know, on the 31st, I was hoping that, you know, 2020 would be a year where we would have less crazy breaking news. And well, that was destroyed very quickly. Yeah. So I've now stopped making New Year's resolutions. I think it's best that way. Yeah, well, there's some things that uh, we can't control, unfortunately. Okay, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, Matt, Reem, Annabelle, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Now, time for a change of topic. One of the things we do here at Politico is delve into a subject over a period of months and explore it from different angles through feature stories, infographics and newsletters. We've recently started one of those series which is branded under the name Telescope and it focuses on HIV and AIDS. We should mention that while the series does have a sponsor, the journalism is produced by Politico with complete editorial independence and that includes this podcast. So, to tell us more about the series, here's Sarah Wheaton, Politico's senior health reporter. Hi Sarah. Hi Andrew. So tell us a bit more about this series, how it came about, what you're focusing on, what you're uncovering. So one of the editors here who used to cover global health in Africa pointed out that AIDS was a topic that we used to be obsessed with. Everybody was afraid of it. It was tearing through cities. It was creating movements for gay rights, creating movements for lower drug prices. And for some reason, it just seemed to completely drop off the radar, at least in Europe and the United States. It's still a raging epidemic in Africa, but in our part of the world, we kind of stopped paying attention to it. So 30 years after this epidemic started, we wanted to really hold up a mirror and see what it looks like today. And what we're realizing is 
medicines have really improved. People can basically live full lives. We even have medicines that can prevent people from getting HIV in the first place. But there's still no cure, and it still seems to catch people who are at the margins of our society. And so we've really been diving into what is new about HIV in the current decade. Right. It does seem to be a story that's moved in in Europe and the US, at least. You know, I remember obviously growing up and hearing a lot about it when, when really the, the talk was all about dying of AIDS or trying to avoid that. And now um, one of the things you're focusing on is living with AIDS and how that is not so straightforward. And so in a minute, we'll hear a conversation you had uh, with one of your colleagues, Carmen Pound, who, who looked into that uh, topic. Tell us a little bit more about her story. Exactly. So Carmen traveled to Lisbon to meet Luis Mandau, and he is somebody who was diagnosed with HIV and with full-blown AIDS in the 1990s, and he was really on the brink of death. Carmen has an anecdote in her article about how Luis figured he was definitely going to die He might as well help his family out. And so he tried to get into an accident so that his family could get the money. But then he started treatment. He was one of the first people in Portugal to go on these new antiretroviral therapies. And after a while, his doctors were like, hey, you know what? You're not dying anymore. And now he is still alive decades later. He's an activist. And Carmen spent the day with him to learn about what his life is like. Okay, so we'll hear that conversation with Carmen and and some excerpts from her interview as well in a moment. Uh, But first, maybe just tell us uh, where people can find out more about this telescope series. Right. So Telescope, the new AIDS epidemic is taking place over nine months. And to help people keep up with the coverage, we're putting out a monthly newsletter. You can go to politico.eu slash telescope to sign up for that newsletter. It's totally free. And we'll put the link for you to find Carmen's story and our other coverage in the description for this podcast. Right. And if you just search uh, Politico Telescope uh, in any search engine, it should take you pretty much uh, straight there. Anyway, that's great. Thanks very much for now, Sarah. We'll hear more from Sarah and Carmen. But first, let's have a message from this week's sponsor. A message from Gilead Sciences. 2020 marks the beginning of the final decade to meet the UN Sustainable Development Goals target of ending the AIDS epidemic by 2030. Despite tremendous advances in the field, HIV-AIDS is still an epidemic with a disproportionate impact on the most marginalized populations. We can do more to help those affected. Gilead Sciences has been a leading innovator for 30 years, working to help treat and prevent HIV and drive cure research. Through scientific efforts, community support programs, and partnerships with leading health organizations, we are continuing to break down barriers and help strengthen public health systems in the fight against the HIV virus. We believe that by working together, we can end the HIV epidemic and achieve lifelong good health for every person living with HIV. Visit www.stopthevirus.eu to see what we're doing to make this happen. Now let's hear from Sarah in conversation with our health reporter, Carmen Pound. Carmen went to Portugal to speak with HIV activist Luís Mendal, who you'll hear from first. There was plenty of difficulties living with HIV at my age. It's a big challenge. We have to give up too many things. Your image, after a certain time, your sexuality, your well-being, and you feel always tired, you feel always pains, very often you are sick. It's 
a difficult life and mainly for people that were infected in the time that I was infected mm -hmm. and uh, with the history of treatments that we have. So Carmen, tell me, how old is Luis and how long has he been living with HIV and how did you come to pick him to be your subject of this article about growing old with HIV? Luis is 61 now, and he's one of the people um, in Europe that has been living for more than two decades with HIV. He was diagnosed in his late, late 30s, so he's had 23 years of actually living with the disease and, and being on medication. Um, I met him um, a few good years ago at uh, conferences on hepatitis C. And at the beginning, I didn't know he had HIV because the, the focus was on hepatitis C. He had had hepatitis C, and he was talking about how he was cured and the cost of the treatment, which had been an issue for a long time. And then in passing, at some point, he actually mentioned that um, he had HIV also and that, in a way, the pharma industry saved his life because they created this treatment um, that allowed him to survive. And then when we started thinking and brainstorming about our series on HIV um, and talking talking about the fact that nowadays people are starting to grow old with HIV, which was a luxury um, maybe 20, 30 years ago. He came back to mind and I thought it would be good to, to talk to him to see what his experience had been. So I went to meet him in Lisbon, where he lives and where he has his office. He runs a patient advocacy group called the Treatment Action Group. And I was planning to maybe spend maybe a couple of hours with him, which for an interview in any case is very long. But we ended up spending probably most of a Friday together. Uh, we probably spent five or six hours talking because his life had been so fascinating, his personal life, his experience living with HIV, living with hepatitis C, being cured of hepatitis C and, and being able to live a full life as possible with HIV and having gone through all this history of the disease from from it being a dead sentence to it becoming a chronic disease that you can you can live with until old age like other diseases have been. Yeah, that's really amazing that people like Luis, their lives have been saved and HIV was not a death sentence for him. And I think for a lot of people in the general public, that's been sort of on our radar that we know that people are living these full lives. But at the same time, they are having some issues. And, and what did you learn about some of the problems that he's had as somebody growing old with HIV? Indeed. So while, while obviously he has survived, which is obviously a major achievement of the world um, in finding ways to treat this disease, he has had some life-lasting um, side effects from medicines, for example. Some of them are very visible. Uh, one of the medicines he took drained the fat from his face, so his face is skinny, while as another one gave him a big belly that in a way doesn't fit with his skinnier frame. So it's a very clear side effect of the medicine and very visible one um, and that's also why he said that at the some point you do have to give up on, on this image of yourself because these are the side effects that you have to live with. At the same time he did talk about how on one side the disease, the, the other side the treatment does put a lot of stress on the body and he feels that he has aged much faster, that he has health problems that maybe people in their 80s have and it is, it is one of the things that researchers and more studies are looking into because indeed it looks like the disease is making people that are living um, with it for a long time in a way age faster. Older people with with or without HIV tend to take uh, lots of pills and uh, as we grow old faster we started to have the 
medications of the 70 years old when we are 55. That sounds like it kind of sucks. It does, but he also told me about how um, this last 23 years of his life have been some of his best years. Um, also because, you know, at the beginning you prepare to die and you try to put all your affairs in order and then all of a sudden you realize you won't die anymore, um, which for him in that right moment was depressing, but at the same time, obviously, you get a different look on life. And he has also worked in patient advocacy, has worked in um, getting treatment for many people that didn't have access to it in lowering drug prices. So really to make sure that people that have the disease actually do get access to treatment and they don't have to die from any of these diseases. In, let's say, 35 years of history of AIDS, it was a new disease, transmissible disease, mortal, that after the symptoms killed very fast and killed everyone that uh, went sick to preventable, easily diagnosed in uh, two uh, seconds with a drop of blood to a completely chronic disease that for people that were diagnosed after 2005 and had access to good treatments, will have an absolutely normal life expectancy. So as you mentioned in your story, Luis was one of the first people in Portugal to start taking these life-saving drugs. And we heard about some of the side effects that he faced, but how have things changed since then? So treatment has improved considerably since side effects are not as bad anymore and not as visible anymore. And one of the main revolutionary things we could say is that, you know, once you get treatment, you're not infectious anymore, which gives also people living with HIV a normal life when it comes to their sex life. They don't have to worry that they would um, get their partners infected and they wouldn't have to worry, for example, that the condom would break. So it actually takes that fear away from people and lets them enjoy again what one could really call a full life. And Luis did make that point a few times when I was talking to him that people that have been diagnosed since 2005 when the new generation of treatments started coming on the market would normally, and, and then get treatment fast, would normally have what we today would see like a normal life. They wouldn't have to go through through the problems he went through and they would most likely not have any of the really traumatic side effects that he has had. And then there are the medicines called uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis that actually allow people who are not infected with HIV to take it and to be protected from actually getting the disease if they do get exposed to it, uh, which also in itself is a major stride in, in dealing with the disease and making sure it doesn't spread to more people. But you are not under the pressure that you are an infectious person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this uh, is both for the people, for the partners, and for the uh, public health, a huge uh, uh, improvement. That's why nowadays we have this test and treat uh, recommendations that is okay, but is this message really getting out beyond the AIDS community? People I've heard from feel like, despite all the scientific progress, there hasn't been much change at all in the level of stigma and discrimination that people living with HIV face. Indeed, I, from what I've heard too, it doesn't get so much outside of 
of the AIDS community or people that uh, maybe have friends or have been exposed to the disease and, and are very knowledgeable about it. Uh, when I wrote the story about Luis's life, I also talked to a few other people, and one of them was telling me that he was recently contacted by a young gay man from southern Italy who was afraid that he would die in, in a few weeks because he had been diagnosed with HIV. And he was also telling me how important the communications campaigns from health ministries in Europe, for example, are. And they they have to strike the right balance between raising people awareness to make sure they don't get exposed to the disease, they protect themselves, while at the same time not increasing the stigma of people who already have it. And I, I did ask Luis about um, the episodes of discrimination that he faced. And actually, surprisingly for me, he told me that many of them were in the healthcare system in Portugal. So he told me um, how one time he went to the dentist and the dentist told him that he couldn't treat him because um, he had HIV and he was afraid that he didn't have all the necessary instruments to make sure that he didn't pass on the disease to other patients that will come after Luis and Luis told him well you know you know that I have HIV and I know that I have HIV but there might also be some of your patients who don't know that they have HIV so that means that you should just close your whole cabinet because you could spread it without knowing if they're not aware and you're not aware um, another funny but also sad moment was when he was telling me about a nurse that he went to to get eye drops and um, she was also aware that he had HIV and she put two pair of gloves and then she was still dropping the drops from very high up from like a meter distance and was getting annoyed with him that they would obviously not fall into his eyes um, and he did say you know you probably have to come closer for that and he was you know he wasn't happy about this discrimination because he said he understands regular people that have the stereotypes and they're afraid but healthcare workers even though personally they could still be afraid and they could still discriminate should be trained not to show it because they are supposed to work and cater to everybody including to people with HIV and at the same time also come across people who do have HIV and they're not aware so they should they should treat everyone the same way and what else surprised you about him so he's a very very interesting man and I felt like one could write a book about his whole life when I went in there I did expect obviously to to talk to someone who's very knowledgeable from a personal level but also through his work as a patient advocate but first of all he was very transparent about his life he's bisexual he talked about it very openly about um, how the disease changes the way you see things your sexual life your outlook on life and then he you know he was one who had a lot of experiences. He studied in France and did drugs in France. Then he went and lived with his um, girlfriend's family in Italy, and then he ended up actually marrying his girlfriend's younger sister later in life after he was diagnosed with HIV and did Camino de Santiago with her. Um, and that was the moment where he also felt that his life, even though with HIV, was great, that he could still do all these things. He could walk 40 kilometers and feel really great, um, even though he had this disease that at times would consume his body. So he is, he, he is like a novel. He's, he's, you know, he, could be, he could be the subject of a movie, and that's why I think we ended up spending so much time together, because it's just endlessly fascinating. There's always something that he did or went through that is just, um, it's just mind-blowing. What you've mentioned, you've mentioned the, a lot of the risk factors for getting HIV. Um, men who have sex with men are at higher risk. Injection drug users are at higher risk. Does he have any regrets? Did he, did he change his behavior after he found out about his diagnosis? 
you know, when I was talking to him, I didn't feel like he had particular regrets about it. He did give up on drugs long time before he was diagnosed with HIV. Um, he decided to just go and spend a week with fishermen at sea to be able to just like get rid of drugs and not, uh, you know, not, not use them anymore. And he did say that unlike other people in his generation, his life wasn't completely destroyed by drugs. Um, in terms of risk factors, he did tell me that for a long time he didn't know when he was infected and he had a few moments when he thought okay those were risk moments and then uh, maybe a decade or even more after he was diagnosed he realized that it was probably a one-night stand but this was in the times when people were just finding out about HIV and there wasn't so much knowledge about it but I didn't feel he had a moment when he would he would go back and say you know I wish I didn't do those things I think he just um, I don't think he sees his life that way that was political health reporters Sarah Wheaton and Carmen Powell. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Next week, we get a perspective on the EU from someone who spent years trying to influence it from the outside. New Zealand's departing ambassador to the EU, David Taylor. In the meantime, we encourage you to rate and review the podcast and to spread the word about it. And you can always email us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez and thanks to you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.